I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. Have you ever heard the ribbit of a frog as you're walking through your neighborhood? Ever see a collection of logs that have been smoothly chipped down by beavers? Maybe that's more for Canadian listeners. Or maybe you just like to spend time at the river that runs through your city. There are all kinds of these examples, but it's often easy to forget that the skyscrapers, pipes, and roads of our cities are connected with natural ecosystems. Over the past year, our team at Intelligent Futures has been working on a couple of environmental master plans. The focus of this work is better integrating our natural systems into how we build our cities. And people often think about cities as being separate from nature, but the reality is that cities are intimately connected with the natural systems that support all life. There's a concept called ecological services that's worth understanding when we think about our cities. So basically, ecological services talk about the activities that naturally occur in nature. For example, a wetland naturally cleans the water, and a tree naturally cleans the air, and all these things happen for free. Now, as more and more people move into cities, I think it's important to continually improve how we integrate our natural and urban systems in all kinds of ways. With all this in mind, we thought we would talk to someone who understands that relationship between natural systems and cities. My name is Dana Duke, and I'm the executive director of the Mistakas Institute. And what is the Mistakas Institute for folks that don't know? The Mistakas Institute, we're a conservation research institute, and all of our work at Mistakas is about getting information into the hands of decision makers so they can make better decisions with respect to conservation. In this episode, Dana and I talk about her work at the Mistakas Institute, the relationship between natural systems and cities, how some cities are recognizing the importance of biodiversity, how citizens can work with scientists to learn more about wildlife, and the importance of green infrastructure and natural systems. You've been with Mistakis for 15 years? Did I see that right? 18. 18. I right. haven't updated our website. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so uh, could you maybe describe your path of uh, how you got to Mistakis and, and the variety of things that you've done uh, within the Institute in your time there? Sure. So my background is in biology and ecology. So I studied biology at McMaster University as an undergrad. And I always had an interest in ecology, the natural world, specifically wildlife. And so um, when I grew up, graduated from my undergraduate degree, I parked my, packed up my car from Ontario and I, I drove west. Um, I knew there was research going on in wolves in Banff National Park, and I was really interested in seeing if I could get involved. And so I came west and I studied actually wolves in Banff for a number of years, and then I did my master's at the University of Alberta. And then from there, I started at the Mestakis Institute. And I have stayed at the Mastakis Institute for so many years because the Mastakis Institute undertakes such a wide diversity of research. And after all this time, I'm still learning. I'm still, all the work we do is so diverse and allows me to just keep learning all the time. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I have to tell you that uh, the learning, obviously, that's, a you know, sharing your learning is a big part of what you do. And, yes. and uh, at our shop, we've... Uh, 
uh, utilized a lot of your research and work <laughs> most okay. most recently last year when we were doing work on ephemeral and intermittent streams policy. Oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, that's really great to hear because it's 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 really important feedback for us, but it's also hard feedback to get because we, you know, we, right. we work really hard at Mustakas to get our information accessible and out there. That's our mandate as a charity. Mm. And, and it's really important for us to get that feedback of when people have, have used it, especially people often use it in contexts that we don't think they necessarily right. will use it in. And that's right. really important for us to hear as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was an interesting project for us because, um, first of all, we had to learn ourselves about what ephemeral and intermittent streams are. And then when we're talking with our professional colleagues about it, we spend the same amount of time explaining to them and looking around North America. There's not a lot of policy and information on it. So we were kind of creating thing from things from scratch. So uh, resources like what was available in terms of um, uh, planning tools and, and tools that you've researched and shared was hugely beneficial. Ephemeral and intermittent streams are transient bodies of water. So what that means is that these streams come and go based on precipitation levels. Although these types of watercourses aren't always present, they're still very valuable in that they provide natural services such as flood mitigation, wildlife habitat, and water filtration. The transient nature of these streams often makes them targets for development. These streams are also usually forgotten in planning and policy and how cities get built. In 2017, our team at Intelligent Futures learned everything we could about ephemeral and intermittent streams when we created planning policy on the subject for the city of Calgary. Although we learned a lot over the many months working on the project, it never got easier to pronounce ephemeral and intermittent streams. So I wanted to chat with you today about the, the intersection of what people would see as nature and cities. So oftentimes when folks think about cities and behave in cities, etc., they they see those two things as separate entities. So the city exists. And then if you want to get away from it all, you might go to a park maybe, but you also might just get out of the city to access nature. Um, but could you maybe talk about the relationship between natural systems and cities and some of the things that you think are most important for a citizen of a city to understand that maybe the average citizen might not? Sure. And I think you're exactly right that I think a lot of people think of um, natural systems as being not part of an urban setting. Mm -hmm. And it it's um, not true at all that we, um, biodiversity is really important within urban environments. You know, and biodiversity is the variety and variability of all life on earth. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it, there's a real continuum of that, it, that there is a lot of biodiversity, biodiversity in certain places in the world. Um, and people tend to think that we don't have that in our cities, mm -hmm. but we do. We have lots of areas within cities that have our hotspots of biodiversity. And more importantly, we have these systems within our cities, mm -hmm. these natural ecosystems. Um, and I think people tend to forget how important those ecosystems and systems are for for our cities because they provide really important ecosystem services to city dwellers. Um, mm -hmm. The ecosystem services that biodiversity contributes to, that's what gives us our clean air, our water, provides our regula uh, regulating systems, carbon cycling, um, 
provides our recreational opportunities, all these ecosystem services. And those are provided by the biodiversity that's right here in our city. Not nece- mm. That's not necessarily provided to us from elsewhere. They're all part of these connected systems mm-hmm. that cities are part of. And, and could you maybe speak to, uh, I guess, traditionally, and I'll define traditionally as, you know, the majority of the 20th century, let's say, how we've planned and built cities and how those have worked or not with those natural systems and what those implications have been? Well, I think um, one of the biggest challenges we've had when we've built our cities is that we haven't been thinking about biodiversity proactively in our planning for our cities. Is We have thought about our natural systems and biodiversity um, reactively. So we think about it after a development has happened and we think about the impact we've had on it and not thinking proactively about we have this system here, we have this biodiversity that's providing these ecosystem services and we need to plan to be able to maintain those um, and conserve those. Mm -hmm. And so we're not putting those things forefront in our city and urban planning. Cities around the world are exploring ways to bring back natural systems after paving them over in one way or another. In Seoul, South Korea, the Cheonggichon stream has been surfaced after decades of being under an elevated highway. In Los Angeles, there are plans for an over $1 billion restoration of parts of the Los Angeles River. An article I saw recently on Yale Environment 360 poses some important questions for LA. With the full restoration out of the picture, a different tangle of philosophical and practical questions remain. How far do you go to create a natural environment in a city? Is it enough just to make a concrete drainage ditch prettier? How much of the project should focus on removing concrete and creating some semblance of a functioning riverine ecosystem? These two examples highlight how hard and expensive it is to react to engineered solutions of the past in order to bring prominence and function back to our natural systems in our cities. Could you maybe uh, talk about your observation of um, perhaps the the mindsets and perhaps the policy um, extension of those mindsets in terms of why that's happened in uh, that that fragmentation and sort of the you. You haven't proactively planned it in the in the at the start. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and I think it goes back to um, you know we don't we don't think of biodiversity as being part of our urban environment, and I think we have to be really proactive and individually. I think um, we often think of ourselves. We often think that you know, as people living in the city, we want to live in a, in a place where. We see wildlife, we have natural areas, but I think there's a real conscious decision by people that needs to happen that um, if we want to have those things, sometimes that will result in an individual or personal um, sacrifice, if you may. Um, It means that people will have to make certain choices that allow that to happen. And I think that rolls up right so from individual behaviors then right up to management and political decisions that Mm. we're making consciously that we want to make make sure that we maintain and have those things on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could talk about some of the creative solutions that cities are um, enacting to address some of these issues. And I think it's interesting you mentioned, you know, there's like, there's the individual citizen level, and then there's all kinds of professionals, engineers and planners and architects and designers, right up to elected officials. Um, where, where are some of the places that are doing some really innovative stuff to help address this issue? Um, well, there's some, there's some great examples in Canada of some cities that are 
really looking at biodiversity and recognizing the importance of biodiversity within cities. Um, and of course, I, th I think there's lots of international examples, but the examples in Canada, two cities, um, Edmonton and Montreal, are really recognized as leaders in how they're recognizing the importance of, of biodiversity for um, for human well-being. And so both these cities are taking, um, it's called an ecological network approach. So it's looking at the entire system, entire um, uh, ecosystem that exists within cities. And it's really about how um, you look at the connections that are happening between species and with biodiversity that you have. And it's really looking at how energy is being transferred, it's looking at carbon cycling, it's looking at predation, it's looking at competition. So um, when you take this ecological network approach, it allows you to look at the stability of systems and how they're structured, um, because that allows you to then to identify your systems to be able to know what you have to do to manage them and what you have to do to, to restore them. Hmm. And so taking an ecological network approach um, is, I think, an innovative approach, not, not, we don't see that happening in a lot of cities. Um, I think it can, I think it can be thought of as, um, in cities, just we manage a lot of our systems from a network approach, whether that's our transportation systems, our pedestrian systems, mm -hmm. our water systems. And we really need to be thinking of our ecosystems from this system approach. And we mm -hmm. look at then how then our ecosystems are overlaid and connect and interconnect with our transportation systems, our pedestrian systems, because then we look for those areas of conflict, because then we can manage right. those proactively. Right. And so I think natural for us to think of all these other systems, but we need to be thinking of our natural world more from a systematic approach. Hmm, okay. And so could you give an example of taking this, this system or network approach? You can choose if, if it's a park space, if it's urban development, a housing development, what would look or feel different if, if a city took that approach? Um, would there be anything tangibly, yeah, like I say, different for the average citizen that would be living there or walking through a space? Well, I think so. I think an example that people could recognize with a lot of people like to live near green space because mm -hmm. green space affords places to recreate, provides places you can walk with your family. Um, but those green spaces are probably um, part of a a network. Um, they provide connections to other habitat nodes mm -hmm. and provide areas of movement for animals, provides, uh, you know, part of the water movement system as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that might result in how people think of green spaces because it might mean that in areas that we identify as being important for wildlife movement within a city, it might mean that we have to think about are these areas that we want to walk our pets off leash, if that's going to provide less security for wildlife. Mm -hmm. um, it makes us think about how we manage the vegetation in these landscapes. In cities, we tend to like manicured landscapes. That often doesn't provide the most optimal opportunities for pollination, mm -hmm. or it might allow for the introduction of invasive species. And so I think um, when, you, when you think about how we manage these green spaces, natural areas within a city. I think there's probably things that citizens will need to change their behavior in so that we can make them the best opportunities for the, um, 
biodiversity. Okay. Um, I know you've been involved with citizen science uh, activities. Could you maybe describe what citizen science is and some of the efforts that you've been involved with? Sure. So citizen science is really about volunteers working with scientists to answer real world questions. And at Mastakis, we've been interested in um, citizen science for a number of years because we feel that, you know, citizens are facing these um, really complex conservation challenges. And we feel that the solutions to those are really about um, having the information you need to make better decisions, but it's also about having an informed and engaged citizenry. Mm-hmm. And so citizen science is, brings those two worlds together. Um, and so... Citizen science allows you to use citizens to collect really valuable data, and at the same time, they're getting engaged and informed about mm-hmm. an issue. And so we have two urban citizen science initiatives um, that we're working on at Mastakis with a number of different partners. One is called Call of the Wetland. So this is a wetland urban citizen science initiative. Mm -hmm. And we undertook this because we recognize wetlands as being an important part of urban urban environments. They provide a lot of ecosystem services from water storage, enhancing resiliency of cities, providing habitat for species. Um, But there's a real challenge with wetlands in that, you know, we've lost over 90% of our wetlands within our urban environment. Um, They're fragmented. They're not connected. They're not included. They're Mm -hmm. not looked at as part of these systems. And so, unfortunately, though, we also don't know a lot about our wetlands within the city. And so we are have undertook um, a research project to look at amphibians within wetlands, because amphibians can be seen as an indicator of wetland health. Hmm. Um, and because we don't know a lot about amphibians, we needed the help of citizens to help us gather that data we needed to learn more about amphibians. And so Call of the Wetland allows citizens, um, all citizens in Calgary, to be able to go out to wetlands that we have identified um, to go out. And with the help of a mobile app, they can document the amphibians they're seeing, but also the amphibians that they're hearing. And so often oh, okay. often you um, you hear amphibians yeah, yeah. before you, you see them. And so you can hear the calls and the app includes Um, You can hear the calls on the app so you'll know the difference between the different species. Um, And you can also record what you're hearing and then that will get sent to us so we can verify it as well. Hmm. Um, And then we're also, if you actually see um, an amphibian as well, that you can... Um, document And so that information then, um, this was designed in partnership with the city of Calgary um, to inform their biodiversity strategy. And so this information is being shared with the city of Calgary. It's being shared with the province of Alberta. So um, ultimately, we will be able to do what's called occupancy modeling. So that will be able to tell us about amphibian populations in the city of Calgary, but then ultimately feed into um how we manage these wetlands. What can we be doing better to ensure that we have healthy amphibian populations? This call of the wetland resource that Dana discussed is really interesting. I have to admit that I lost quite a bit of time listening to different frog sounds. Did you know that a chorus frog sounds like this? Then there's the adult Canadian toad, which has a pretty shrill call. The northern leopard frog. (laughs) 
If you're interested in more identifying features of different amphibians in the Calgary area, we put the link in the show notes. Yeah. And so, so what you get in that solution, in that approach then is citizens that are, like you say, they're learning mm-hmm. as they're being engaged, which is, you know, very different than, um, you know, seeing a poster somewhere that What's says definitely? you should do this or know, learn this. Well, yeah, even for me, I mean, I, I know about the importance of wetlands. Um, mm-hmm. However, I did not, not know that um, one, how many wetlands were in proximity to my house and <laughs> how biodiverse they were. Um, you know, we all bike by wetlands in our neighborhoods and we have, we have so many wetlands in the city of Calgary, um, some that are in really great shape, but some that are, are, are not in great mm-hmm. shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this is, what we have found already, so we're in the second year of our, this is a three-year program. What we have found is that volunteers that have participated um, have already started um, providing comments, which they can do within the app of concerns they have about what they're seeing in these wetlands, a lot of garbage, a lot of dumping, um, uh, and already those comments have been compiled and submitted to the city of Calgary, which they've already started to respond to doing a bit of cleanup of some of these wetlands that need some more attention. And so right there is showing the success of people being engaged in what is a data collecting and monitoring program into trying to get something done to improve the health of these wetlands. Yeah, so you can see the the positive steps of engagement leads to increased knowledge, leads to action, leads to ownership and yes. the sort of virtuous cycle that that can, that can create. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so as, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the conversations we've had with um, on a variety of different projects, but the, the skeptical citizen that comes in and says, well, you know, like a city, my water goes in a pipe, the city takes care of it. This is just either fluff or unnecessary added expense. What would you say to someone that had that kind of approach or attitude when we're talking about the natural systems in, in our cities? Um, I guess I, I would say that um, that's true, that there's a lot of systems in place that look after you know, a lot of the things we need, but, I, but I think there's a lack of understanding of how many services that nature provides us mm-hmm. that for, you know, water for free, for free. exactly. <laughs> cause, and, cause those, those, the, that, that attitude is often associated with, uh, an idea of cost and tax dollars, et cetera. Right. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of studies out there that, ca- you know, calculate the monetary value of the services that need to provide and they're big numbers. And so, and I think in a city, you know, um, and there's examples of other cities that have invested in upland habitat protection that then have resulted in millions of dollars of cost savings mm-hmm. from a water treatment perspective. And so, um, cities where, um, uh, there's examples in, in New York state where they recognized they right. were having pollution problems and the cost it was going to take to upgrade their water treatment systems. And instead they invested in upland habitat protection through land securement and it resulted in huge cost savings for the city. And so people reckon, again, it's, it's thinking about 
not just your city, but the systems perspective that our water comes from somewhere. And if the, it reaches the city in a poor state, then that's more onus on the city to have to treat that water. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots that we can do be thinking about from where our water is coming from, what we're contributing into that water system to reduce the burden on how much we have to treat that water. Um, and from a resiliency perspective, we all saw the impacts of the, the flood that we had in Calgary. And there's a lot of natural resiliency built into the system and in, into our natural systems. And unfortunately, we, we've reduced a lot of that natural resiliency because of our built environment. And um, but we can um, restore a lot, some of that. We can put some of that back. We can really look at our natural systems to see where resiliency is built into these systems to make sure that we're maintaining that so that when we have natural um, disasters like flood and also drought, I think that mm-hmm. we live in a part of the world where we are prone to drought and um, having systems in place where we can store water, we can um, cool water, um, it reduces the burden then that our um unnatural systems mm-hmm. have to take on. Mm-hmm. Let's chat a bit about climate change and resiliency and adaptation and all those things. Um, you, you spoke about some of the impacts. Um, can you also maybe describe why working with natural systems is what, what some of those other impacts could be as we're seeing with with uh, increased impact of climate change? Um, but also one, one of the things that I find interesting is the idea that Again, it relates back to the city or nature. And so if you are working with natural systems, the assumption would be that you're just kind of handing it off. Your humans are stepping back, but there's actually environmental design that works intentionally designs with natural systems in mind. Um, realize that's kind of a long winded rambling question, but could you maybe talk about how those two things can work together? Because, uh, Maybe even the Beaver Project you talked about. Sure. Sorry, we started recording yeah. um, because I, I do think that there's we have to figure out ways to design and address these. And how can natural systems design sure. um, accommodate yeah. change? Um, and and it's kind of you know you hear a lot about gray infrastructure and green infrastructure and you know our urban environments tend to have a lot of gray infrastructure Mm -hmm. a lot of you know built constructed Mm -hmm. and there's more and more emphasis now on the importance of green infrastructure and how natural systems um can provide similar types of services as gray infrastructure and so um an example of that is looking at the role that beavers play in watershed resiliency and restoration and so you know beavers are a species that we have on our landscape they've been in alberta for thousands of years Um, we used to have a lot more beavers in alberta than we do now Um, and beavers play an extremely important role in um, watersheds from a resiliency perspective they store water from the beaver ponds the dams that they built then result in beaver ponds which hold a lot of water Um, and they can also reduce the impact from flooding by holding back water from a flood and so we're undertaking a research project right now where we're trying to promote that role of beavers recognizing that um, landowners who are out there whether they're ranchers and have to have water on the landscape to water their cattle um, or agricultural producers um, having beavers on the landscape can help enhance that resiliency that we're seeing that um, we have seen from flood and and probably will see more in the future from drought and so 
having more beavers on the landscape would result in enhancing that resiliency. And so we're working to try to um, let landowners know that there's coexistence tools because we recognize that while there are natural solutions to some of these things, some of them come at a cost and that's mm. that beavers do cause damage. They flood areas, they take down prized trees. Um, and so there are things you can do to reduce the damage that beavers cause so that people are more amenable to having and coexisting with them on the landscape. Mm-hmm. And I think coexistence is a, is a big theme that we focus on a lot is that um, recognizing that if we really are want to integrate more with our natural systems, um, we have to think about how humans coexist on the landscape with wildlife, whether that's with beavers or whether that's with wildlife in city environments. Um, there's, um, I think there's a lot that we have to do on the human side of things to, to think about mm-hmm. how we coexist with wildlife. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting when we were chatting about it, how <clears throat> the, you know, y- your work intends to inform decision makers so citizens can make individual decisions all day. Um, and some of the work you just described helps to understand landowners and how they can coexist. But your point of uh, up the decision making chain, there's actual policy that would be in place if, if big uh, mindset and practice changes were to happen at the individual level. Policy at this at this time doesn't actually support that. Could you maybe expand on that a bit? Um, well, and I, it's something I touched on earlier, just, mm. just that a lot of managing for biodiversity in mind has to be um, really proactive. And that means it has to be considered at the highest level of planning. And so mm. whether that's in your um, oh, uh, municipal development plans, where biodiversity is driving policy decisions mm. um, so that and, and it means that you have to understand your ecological networks within an urban environment prior to planning happening. And I think that that's a real missing piece that people don't understand what how their systems are structured. Um, and so they're not able to make those decisions um, as well mm-hmm. proactively. Um, so I think first and foremost, that we need, need to be thinking about how biodiversity can be driving some of the municipal planning processes. Mm-hmm. And we're starting, I think, to see that happening in some municipalities. But I, I do think there's a lag between um some of the planning in municipalities and then citizens, because mm-hmm. they don't think a lot of citizens there are, are then recognizing the importance of biodiversity and that these decisions are going to require investment. Um, yeah. And of course, there has to be citizen support for a mm-hmm. lot of those investments. Mm-hmm. So the, the places that you've seen that are making those shifts, is it primarily coming from uh, kind of the professional level? Is that are, are those folks the drivers or are they yeah, political? Like or? The places I mentioned, um, like Edmonton and Montreal, they've kind of taken this three-prong approach where they've recognized that in order to, to really elevate um, the importance of biodiversity within urban environments, they, they look at it from a policy perspective, they look at it from a partnership perspective, and from a citizen engagement perspective. So from a policy, they're really integrating biodiversity in the highest level of their planning. Yeah. But then I think just as important for them is partnerships. They're recognizing that within an urban environment, so much of the land base is privately owned, mm-hmm. um, that um, they have to really develop these partnerships with them, whether it's individual landowners, companies that actually own a lot of the land base mm-hmm. as well, to try to really elevate that understanding of the importance of biodiversity so that decisions can be made at individual levels, industry level, along with the municipal level, because municipalities can't do this on their own. They have to be really thinking about what partnerships do they really need to be building to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And then 
part of that then is citizen engagement and education. Right. It's really, it's all about, um, there's lots of education programming out there. It's the citizen science engaging people in these, these programs so they can start to understand the importance of biodiversity mm-hmm. more. There's another urban citizen science mm-hmm. initiative going on in the city of Calgary. Right. So for um, people within Calgary that are interested in getting involved, um, it's a biodiversity initiative. It's called Calgary Captured. Mm-hmm. And this is a partnership initiative. It's with the city of Calgary. It's with Alberta Parks. It's with the Glenmore Weaselhead Preservation Society and Friends of Fish Creek. And... Um, this this project was designed because recognizing we know biodiversity is important, but again, we don't really know that much about what critters are aware. And um, this is a, a project that uses remote cameras. So we have remote cameras. Mm-hmm. We have 60 of them set up all over the city um, in green spaces. Um, and so these cameras are catching images of wildlife and people as they move through these areas. Um, but the way where citizens can get involved is, is, um, as you can imagine, we get hundreds, um, thousands of images uh, from these cameras mm-hmm. and we need to classify them. And so these images are uploaded onto a online citizen science platform. It's called Zooniverse. It's actually a really cool citizen Zooniverse. science platform that actually houses all kinds of citizen science platforms from astronomy, history, biology that people sitting at home can get involved in. So all of the images from Calgary Captured are uploaded onto this platform. And so anyone can, sitting at home can go on to Calgary Captured and help us classify all of these images. Yeah. And it's really cool. It's about it's like being a little spy out there mm-hmm. and you get to see what's been walking through our green spaces yeah. in the city of Calgary. And so this information is really going to help us understand what's where, look at trends over time, and then ultimately we want to look at, you know, where are some hot spots for movement that we can then maybe drill down a little bit closer to start to identify, well, um, is, is this an area, and again, this is that bringing it back to being proactive, do we want to be facilitating movement through some of these areas and not others because you don't want to be creating conflict right. with humans in areas that, you don't, you know, that could be conflict and you want to maybe be thinking about facilitating movement where it's more secure for wildlife and others. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Calgary Captured is an opportunity for people to get involved if they want to help classify these images. And you get to see some really cool images of yeah, wildlife. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Okay, so we'll definitely put a link to that yes, on, the, on the show notes. Yeah, great. Okay. And uh, the final question that we ask uh, all our guests is, uh, can you share a city that you love and why you love it? Um, well, I'll quantify that by saying I'm... I'm not a city gal. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a on a on a farm, and I love more um, rural landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think then what I love about Calgary, which to me is a great city, is that there are so many opportunities for me to go to be in the city of Calgary and mm-hmm. not feel like I'm in a city. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really special thing. And mm-hmm. I think it's something that as Calgarians, we're really lucky to have that. Um, any day I live up in the northwest of the city and I can walk into Nose Hill Park and I don't see the city, I don't hear the city. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we're really lucky and we're really lucky that for the amount of um, like the biodiversity that we have, we can mm-hmm. still see wildlife. I still see I still see moose. I still see mm-hmm. coyotes, you know, and we're really lucky. My my, my colleague um, had a lynx with her kitten in his backyard um, nursing 
the the baby the the kitten and that's right that was right in the middle of the city and i really? think you know we're really wow. fortunate to live in a city that still has this this amount of biodiversity yeah. um and that hopefully we can maintain it in his book cities and natural processes michael huff wrote an environmental view is an essential component of the economic engineering political and design processes that shape cities I think that's a really great way of saying that we need to incorporate the environment into how we build our cities of the future. I think this is a dual challenge, both retrofitting our concrete solutions of the past and also proactively thinking about the design and function of our natural systems when we're building new parts of our cities. With more and more of us living in cities, we can't afford to ignore the natural systems that support us. On top of her work as the executive director of the Mistakis Institute, Dana is also the co-board chair for the Alberta Ecotrust Foundation, an environmental nonprofit that develops partnerships between the corporate sector and the environmental community here in Alberta. Together, they invest in the people and projects that protect the natural systems that Albertans rely on for their health and prosperity. And as part of their work to promote the environment as the foundation of a healthy community, they hold an annual environmental gathering to bring people and organizations together to explore and participate in positive environmental action. The environmental gathering is the only place in Alberta where people in the environmental community, private sector, government and citizens can gather to connect, learn from each other's perspectives and collaborate to find new solutions to the hard and complex environmental challenges that we all face. The Environmental Gathering is a place where everyone's voice is part of the conversation. This year's program uses the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals as a lens for environmental work in Alberta. You'll find speakers and workshops focused on ideas related to a lot of what Dana spoke about in this podcast. Mistakis will have a citizen science booth. Many other topics related to UN Sustainable Development Goals will be covered, such as sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, affordable and clean energy, and climate action. We're also going to be at the event. 360 Degree City will have a podcast booth on site. We'll be asking attendees questions about the connections between environmental and urban health. Kate and Cassandra from our team at Intelligent Futures are also facilitating a workshop on user experience mapping. The event takes place on April 4th and 5th at Mount Royal University here in Calgary. Early bird tickets are available before February 28th, and you can reserve a spot by going to www.albertaecotrust.com slash gathering. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.